We're going to pray together, but just before we do, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Matthew, Matthew 18 and verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28, Matthew 28 and verses 16 to 20. So from Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. God, we... Thank you this morning that you have revealed to us who you are. God, just as you came to our forefathers long ago, you have come to us. We've heard the gospel, we've responded with broken hearts. We've acknowledged our sinfulness before you and we've realised that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you, God, for sending one to tell us about you, for sending someone into our lives, a friend, a, a church, a person who would share the gospel with us. Thank you, God, that we know you now because of someone who has been willing to share with us. God, this morning, we realize that you still have so many people that you want to reach with your good news. That you want to show your love to. God, this morning, would you speak to us and and challenge us? Would you help us to continue to do what you're calling us to do as a church? And we pray the result would be that many, many, many people far from you today would come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. God, uh, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're speaking to us. We pray for those in Malawi this morning, those in Nairobi, those in uh, Burma, God, we ask uh, that you would continue to uh, work and empower and strengthen and encourage those who are your followers and taking your message in those countries. And God, we pray for our country this morning as we move closer and closer to an election. We pray that you would help us to be those that uh, really uh, make known our desire to see godly values 
in those who would lead us. God, would you be bringing about uh, the ones you will have in, in, in government. And God, today, we pray for our church. Continue to lead us, God, and to guide us as we look to you every step. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to worship him together this morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be out here in Albury-Wodonga. I can actually see the sun. I can breathe some clean, pure air. It is wonderful. Too bad about the water situation. But uh, it's similar to that in Melbourne, of course. Regarding the rain, um, as you may know, all the churches were asked to be praying for rain on this particular day. And so last week I spent uh, the time talking in our congregations preliminary to this for the urgent need for repentance which has to start in the house of God. Not out there in Canberra, not in Spring Street, with our state or federal parliaments, but in the house of God, amongst God's people. And uh, when I get back there next Sunday, before departing for other countries, Sunday evening of this week or next week, I'll be calling for repentance across the the congregations of Crossway. Folks, I think that's... That's where it needs to start, to break through in the spiritual realms for whatever reason. I recognize the physical realms, but the spiritual realms which might be affecting us so greatly. In the meantime, I'm delighted to be here with you. I enjoy escaping from the clutches of Crossway. In October 2004, I started succession planning for my eventual successor. And I had thought initially I'd escape completely in 2007. That didn't happen. And so now we have in place, we'll be having another pastor come on board next year. And I thought, goody, from February, I'm free. But now uh, my responsibilities there mean that I'll be there for another couple of years and some are saying another five years. And I'm so looking forward to one day getting to the stage where I can use your taxes for the old age pension for me. (laughs) Well, maybe the salary I've got, I already qualify. I've never inquired of Centrelink about that. But it is good to be here with you today and uh, this morning I'm going to speak in some general terms about mission. Tonight I want to speak to you specifically and more extensively about Islam, the fastest growing religion in the world. And if you imagine that it's going to pass you by in Albury-Wodonga, don't you believe it? Every place in our nation, every city, every town, no matter where it is, the far remote Aboriginal communities are all coming under that pressure. And tonight I want to speak to you specifically on Islam 
and what you can, what you can start to do about it. Uh, before I do that, let me just refer to some of those books that uh, your pastor, Ref Pastor Jonathan, referred to. He held up a little one called uh, Praying the Price. And tens of thousands of that little booklet have gone out all over the place and been such a great encouragement in turning churches around, in reviving people's hope and so forth. It has a new life and an updated version, this little The Prayer of Obedience this is called. And again, tens of thousands of, of that are going out around the place. It's available up the bookshop at the back. And if you're lacking vision for your life or your church, you need this little one here, The Promise of Vision. These are sort of the Reader's Digest editions of larger matters. If you want to get into the matters more seriously, then there's Growing Church Supernaturally, Persevering in Prayer. And again, uh, lots and lots of copies. I don't know how many thousands of this have gone out into various countries. These are up the back. They're just $5 and this thing is $12.50. This one here came out a month or so ago called Defying Death. It's a sequel to this one here, Most and Miracles, to which Pastor Jonathan referred. And this is the one which tens of thousands of copies are in various countries now. It is about Islam. It's out of print at the moment. I was talking to the publisher this week and he's printing another couple of thousand copies, which we will have shortly. I have this copy with me. There's one up on the back table there. And uh, if it's a case of first come, first served, but there will be a sheet of paper. If you want to receive a copy, then you can put your name there. I regret to advise you, you'll need to put your money too. Because quite often in the past, people have said, oh, send me a book, send me a book. Regrettably, Christians may not be better than others at paying for them once they receive their books. So that's available for just $20. Defying Death is the story of one man who has an amazing ministry, Zachariah Botros, who uh, each week, each month is seeing thousands of Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ in the hardest to reach places. And of course, he has uh, often been in prison himself. Uh, he lives today with protection. There is a price on his head of somewhere between five and, and $25 million if he can be caught and killed. And uh, I'm not about to expose where he's living or that sort of thing. But uh, that is a fascinating, fabulous story of what it is like to be someone living in a particular Muslim country. You can learn all about it through the book. Again, that's only $12.50. You will not get these books for these prices from Kurong or anywhere. They're reduced because I am here. And the additional um, benefit is I'm happy to sign the books for you. But you need to understand something. My bank manager would tell you that my signature really isn't worth much. But here's the good news. In a week or so, I'll be in Afghanistan. Imagine the value of my signature on your book if I was taken by the Taliban <laughs> and died out there. Now, you have a problem. Are you going to pray? that I will stay alive <laughs> because that's a good Christian thing. You're supposed to do that. Or are you going to pray that I'll be knocked off and you'll have something of real value? 
Imagine if you had a book in your library signed M. Luther or J. Calvin or something like that. That would add great value. Anyway, they're available up the back as you go out. A lovely lady there who is uh, manning all that for us. And uh, God bless you as you buy and read some good food. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reason we are here today, the person and the presence of Jesus. Put upon our hearts that which is upon yours and cause us to respond appropriately in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1985, an American evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody wanted to see the entire world evangelized by the close of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And so he put out a challenge. He said, it can be done. It ought to be done. It must be done. And 100 years later, in 1995, at a conference in Seoul, Korea, at which I was present, a South American evangelist by the name of Lewis Bush, he set another goal, and it was this, a church for every people, the gospel for every person. The question is, what hope is there of success for these wonderful goals, or will those who come after us at the end of the 21st century still be looking out on a somewhat grim situation with the job yet to be finished. It can be done, is the first thing that Moody put before us. It can be done because so much of the work has already been done through literature distribution, through radio transmission, audio recording, film, television, preaching, itinerant evangelist, and so forth. 95% of the global population already have access to the gospel. For every unreached people group, there is already in excess of 600 believing congregations. That is, congregations who take the word of God seriously and who believe it and who try to leave it, lead it. For each unreached people group, 600 congregations are in existence. It can be done. I was glad to see that you have an interest in Malawi. Margaret and I were there not so long ago ourselves with John and his team. I was glad to see you have some interest in African enterprise and you are in one of their countries. I'm a board member of African enterprise. The evangelization of the world in our time can be done. Secondly, it can be done because of unprecedented, massive prayer mobilization. Not just because the work has been done through technology and literature and all those things. This is a spiritual exercise. It can be done through unprecedented, massive prayer mobilization. In the 20th century, we have seen things which have never been seen before in the two millennia of Christian existence. There was explosive growth in the church in Korea, in Brazil, in parts of Africa, in China. 
And these things have not come about by accident. They have been undergirded by massive prayer movements. In South Korea, Christianity increased there from virtually zero to almost 50% in the 20th, 20th century. In China, during the last half of the 20th century, the Christian population increased there from the census done in 1947 when they were just 600,000 in number to approximately 80 million by the turn into the 20th century. And the growth continues. In Africa, that is an entire continent, at the beginning of the 20th century, just 3% of the continent of Africa were Christian. By the end of the 20th century, 47% of that continent had become Christian. From these nations, there is now going out a new wave of international missionaries, and I meet them wherever I go. I was over in West Africa in 2005. There I was with missionaries from Brazil and Korea. Later in that year, I was up in China, helping to train some of their missionary people. And they have a goal of sending out 100,000 missionaries back into the Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim worlds. When I was in Pakistan, meeting with staff from Pakistan and, Af and Afghanistan earlier this year, I was meeting their missionaries from Argentina, from Korea, from China, Later, I was in India doing some training there, and there were missionaries from Singapore and Colombia. The growth of Christianity and the missionary movement that is coming out from these new and emerging countries is due muchly to the massive prayer movement which has undergirded these things. Thirdly, it can be done because of the accelerated outreach of improved technologies. Just over a decade ago, when Billy Graham was far more healthy than he is at the moment, in 1995, Billy Graham in one day alone spoke to more people than he had done in the totality of his 40 years of international ministry. And satellite technology made it all possible. Gospel Recordings is an organization which began in Australia in the 1940s. By the turn of the century, they had made recordings available to 96% of the world's major languages. Earlier in their history, when they started off, they used plastic discs, which one turned with a pencil and a scratchy piece of cardboard with a needle in it amazingly reflected or made available the sound. But now the technology is such that they use solar-powered credit card-sized digital devices, which have no moving parts at all and are almost indestructible and simply reproducible. The five major international Christian broadcasters are working cooperatively so that by radio, 97% of the world's population can tune in to Christian broadcasts of various sorts. By last year, the Jesus film, about which you've undoubtedly heard, had been translated into 959 different languages. 
4.5 billion people around the world had heard its message by watching that film in over 200 countries. 201 people, 201 million people had responded by indicating their desire to follow Jesus through watching that film. Satellite television is bypassing the toughest areas to reach in the world. As I mentioned before, Zachariah Botros, at some risk to himself, is four times a day seen in all the Middle East Arabic-speaking countries, broadcasting in by satellite television, and those countries cannot block those broadcasts. And as a result of that, thousands of people every month in these almost impossible-to-reach areas are communicating, saying they also want to follow Jesus. It can be done. Already we have the Bible translation into 80% of the world's population. 90% have a New Testament. It can be done. Then secondly, it ought to be done. Matthew 28, from which Pastor Jonathan read before, verses 19 to 20, there Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples. That is the depth of the commission. Don't just go out there and do a few good deeds. Make disciples who are going to be reproducers of other disciples, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that Timothy was to be doing this and to be training others to make this more disciples. Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus told his disciples that to go into all the world, that is the width of the Great Commission. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, he gives an understanding of the commission. And then in John 20, 21, as he invited his disciples to look at him and to identify with him, to see the gash in his side and the holes in his hands, as he stands there before his men, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. As the Father has sent me and I have witnessed and I have taught and I have preached and I have made some disciples, so now you go out into the world, but keep in mind you can expect little better to happen to you than what you are seeing has happened here to me. There is the cost of the commission, and it is costly. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find the commencement of the commission in Jerusalem and thence to the uttermost parts of the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts of the Apostles, as if the Holy Spirit was very much aware that we needed this repetition so we could not miss what was close to the heart of God. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will do whatever I command you. If Jesus is Lord, and that is our testimony, our basic creedal statement. If Jesus is Lord and we are his servants, if there is a heaven and there is a hell, then it seems to me that Jesus' last command ought to be our first priority. And in view of what we know, we need to make it as hard as possible for anyone, anywhere, anytime to end up going to hell. In fact, we need, to be, we, we need to be plundering hell so that we can populate heaven. This is a moral imperative. 
It can be done. It ought to be done. It must be done and is being done. In 1995, I heard of a lady whose husband had died and uh, he had died in 1985 while they were working amongst tribal peoples in India. And as you could imagine, in that situation, the normal thing is for the widow, and in this case, her children, to withdraw and to go back home to an honored but somewhat lonely life. But this woman, although she was depressed, she prayed, Lord, we're here. 1995, and my husband is gone. But if you would be gracious to me, I would prefer to stay. And I would like to plant 20 churches by the year 2000. On the other hand, it could be 50. Within 10 years, that widow lady had planted 65 churches. If she can do it out there, what are we doing here? A little while ago, I remember reading of an area in China which, like sundry areas of the world, was racked with violence, crime, corruption, and poverty. The local communist cadres had given it their, their best, and they'd failed. They couldn't turn the situation around, and so in absolute desperation, they reached to the bottom of their failure bucket and called in some Christians to see what they might be able to do. Well, they did plenty. And today that place has been transformed into a place of peace and prosperity as the local people have now submitted to the law of love of Jesus Christ. And in country after country after country, wherever I go, I find that God is on the move. And he is looking for those people whose hearts beat as one with his to do that which he wants to achieve. The Spirit of God is moving in unprecedented ways in all sorts of obscure places. I say obscure because that's what he usually does. He finds it difficult from the, my reading of history to work in those places where the church is well established, where it is large, where it is rich, because it becomes so self-sufficient. I often say to the people at Crossway, we are in a dangerous position here because we have known the blessing of God. We assume the blessing of God will always be on us. Oh, no. It doesn't work like that. It's in the obscure, out-of-the-way places that the Spirit of God goes and starts something anew again and again. And in my surveying around the world, I was able to come across in 52 different countries, documented reports where God, by His Spirit, by His power, had raised the dead to life again. We probably wouldn't allow God to do that here in Australia. So He's doing it in the other places. It's as if we are on, on the last lap before Jesus returns, and God is encouraging us to get up and run for gold. 
1958, admittedly a few years ago now when I was growing up in the city of Brisbane, then I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he asked me to do something which for me at that time was very hard. He asked me to give up athletics. I'd longed to represent Australia at the Olympic Games and to give up football. I was, I'm probably on the wrong side of the border to say this, but in Brisbane we played real football, you know. <laughs> and we didn't have all those namby-pamby rules you have today. You pick them up and you spear them into the ground. World Rugby, League, World Rugby Union this morning on television. Oh, yes, I was up praying and I happened to see it out of one eye. <laughs> a guy was penalised just because he pushed someone in the back. Oh, come off it. Knock his head off. <laughs> I do carry some wounds from those days <laughs> myself. <laughs> but captaining football teams up there and doing athletics and, and I came to know Jesus... And he asked me to move my brains from my feet to my head and to start to train for another race, a long-distance marathon of life. And so for the next 39 years up to this day, I did assignments, I sat for exams, I studied hard, I obtained various degrees along the way moving my family in and out of various countries. A number of times as a result of that, we lost our possessions and children. But we always followed on after God to the best as we were able, whatever he commanded. And we, during those days back there, we received a vision of seeing thousands of Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ when as far as we knew, history told us, there may have been some somewhere sometime, but nobody knew anything about it and certainly not in the part of the world where we were. And then I was asked to come back to Australia under the Lord's command, receiving a vision of working toward what is today known as Crossway which in turn has become, amongst other things, a major missionary and funding centre. There are just 56 missionaries out from that church, uh, distributed around the world, muchly in the 1040 window as church planters in some of the hardest places to reach in the world. We have a goal of seeing 100 missionaries out from there. Just a few weeks ago in the Crossway Central congregation. I was interviewing a young couple. They had just been thrown out of the country where they had been working. As a result of that, they had lost a baby and uh, they were back. They'd been back a, a month or so and now they're preparing to return. And in fact, they have re-entered the country under the guise of another cover. But when before all the people, I asked the wife, you know, do you really want to do this sort of thing? If Why would you do it? And she said, no, no, I don't want to do it. It's so hard and we have lost so much already. 
but Jesus makes it all worthwhile. And for his sake, we will go on. And today, they're back in that country. But all through the years, I never forgot my own dream, which I had surrendered before, of one day stepping onto the running track of an Olympic stadium to run for gold. And then, in the year 1995, as I and 4,000 other international delegates were attending a conference in Korea, we came, the organizers of the conference in Seoul asked us to forget about the afternoon program. They put us into buses, took us. They didn't say where they were taking us. We stopped outside this dark tunnel and were asked to walk through it. And it turned out that this was the Seoul Olympic Stadium. And as we walked through that dark tunnel and came bursting out, into the floodlit lights all around that stadium, we were surrounded in all the stands by 80,000 young adult Koreans. And they had already accepted the challenge of being given the name and the place of a village in North Korea so that as soon as the bamboo curtain came down, they would know precisely where to go and to start their work in North Korea. And when they saw us walk into their stadium, they cheered, they clapped, they shouted as we older ones came in. They sang a song which was flashed up onto the, the big video screen on this side in English and at the other end in Korean. And the song was, Jesus is Lord. And as I walked down the straight on the track on that day, I received the strong impression that the Lord was saying to me, Stuart, I have been watching you over all these years. And I remind you that you have never, ever been alone. Keep running well. A cloud of witnesses surrounds and is also watching. Get ready to run your last lap. Get ready to burst through the tape triumphantly. Five years later, in October 2001, I found myself in emergency care in a hospital in Brisbane. And there I was given just a matter of hours to live because of a health crisis which was inoperable. I was not afraid of dying. In fact, I did regain sensibility sufficiently to hear the specialist say, we can't operate. It's inside the brain in the center of that area there. We can't get at that. And I just had the wit and wisdom to say, it's okay, doc. There's really not much in there. There's plenty of room to operate. <laughs> And then I lost it again. But I had run my race, I thought, always with an eye on the goal. I was not afraid of dying. But from that, I did recover. Oh, it took five months. God assured me that I had more work yet to do. Specialists later told me that what I'd sustained 
other people having that, they're mostly dead. Or if not, they would be so severely impaired physically that probably be better off if they were dead. They described my recovery as miraculous. And I can't explain why I would still be alive today. Why there is no permanent massive damage. Why I am still running. Although I have been told and warned to go carefully. Don't overexert. And when I heard that, I thought, well, I can either rust out and look after myself for the next 30 years or I can blow out. And if you knew me, you'll know I opted for the latter. So maybe I won't reach tonight. Who knows? I'm not worried about those things. But what I do know is that after 11 days in a very still and solitary confinement, the church led by the young people at Crossway came together to pray. Oh, they'd been praying in their small groups, but, but the youngsters called the church and several hundred of them came and they spent the evening praying to God for their benighted pastor. I would have thought they'd pray that they'd get rid of me or something. But they prayed I would survive. I didn't know they were praying. What I do know is six hours later, at 4 a.m. in the morning, the Lord woke me up and advised me I was going to be discharged because I had more work to do, that I needed to keep going. And so I'm still running. May I ask you, in what race are you running? In 1898, the first missionaries arrived in what today is called the Congo in Africa. They were coming mostly from Great Britain and the United States, and they had a goal of telling every tribe about Jesus. And wave after wave of missionaries came and they all died of tropical diseases for which there was no medication to help them. And so well did they know in advance that that was what was going to happen to them that they used to pack their belongings into their own coffins and use the coffins to take with them into that situation. They were eager to pay a price out of sheer gratitude for what Jesus Christ had done for them. And they wanted above all else that others should know of his love and his forgiveness and his salvation. And they ran, as I also have tried to run, that the world might know Jesus. A couple of years ago, when I was in South Asia, meeting there with specialist teams, which had been working with Muslim populations in various South Asian countries, I learned within those teams and from one of the countries they'd come, every single Christian in that country had been thrown into prison and the foreign component, those missionaries, had all been expelled. From other countries, a 42-year-old missionary had died of cerebral malaria. In another family, a child had died. 
In another area, a team member had been stripped naked and beaten in public for 11 hours. Others had been imprisoned repeatedly. A Christian school had been attacked six times. A hospital had been attacked violently three times. But none of those teams were thinking of withdrawing in the face of such hostile counterattack and oppression. In Iran, where we're seeing an amazing work of God, as one Iranian said recently, Ayatollah Khomeini has been the greatest gift to the Christian church taking the wrapping of the lovely package of Islam up on the shelf so that the world can see what it's really like. And in Iran, when pastors are appointed, the first thing they do is appoint their successor because they expect they will be killed. And when asked about dying as a martyr, one replied, what a waste of a good life it would be not to die as a martyr for Jesus. One church which had lost three pastors already, they said, we are privileged to offer these as our gifts to God. These people are in a different realm from which we are. In China, the leaders up there say, Stuart, when you get back to Australia, tell those Australians to stop praying that the persecution of us will be stopped because we know that persecution has been the very means of the explosive growth of the church in China. We welcome it. We here in China are praying that the church in the West might suffer some persecution to bring it to life. Two weeks ago, a worker for the Bible Society was stabbed to death outside the Bible Society bookshop in Gaza, leaving a young wife and a couple of young children. Last week I learned of a couple who had been shot in the head. In Peshawar in Pakistan. And next week... I'll be in Afghanistan where it's so hard and so dangerous and they've lost the lives recently of Koreans but God is carving out an amazing thing in that country in spite of all of the danger and the killing and the oppression. God is at work there. Why wouldn't we be there in the name of Jesus? In Sudan and Ethiopia, where the church is under great pressure. The greatest movement of God is underway. Evangelists are on the road planting churches all over the place. You only see the bad stories every week on your television about Sudan and Darfur and Somalia and those places, but there is another story unreported out there. They say, at Pentecost, there were 3,000 new believers in one day. But we have seen 20,000 praying to receive Jesus in one day. We need to make Jesus' last command our first priority. Plundering hell to populate 
heaven. During the period AD 30 to 1991, there were 788 plans developed for world evangelization. But the Great Commission is still unfulfilled. Discipling of the nations is still God's top priority. It can be done. It ought to be done. It must be done and is being done. And to see it done, we must be prepared to dare anything and risk everything. Therefore, may I ask you, in what race today are you running? And in what race may God be calling you to run. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world and for the supreme price that he paid so that we also might hear and receive and respond. And to go out into the world in obedience to his repeated commands, making disciples. Father, I thank you for the wonderful work and the life history of this church here in Wodonga. But all that's happened in the past is merely a foundation for the future. For in this place, we can only see further and go further because we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us as foundation stones. Lord, may you on this day, this morning and this night, God willing, when we gather together again, speak to us that from this relatively unknown city internationally of Wodonga, there might come yet another mighty move of your spirit, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of the peoples of the world who have yet to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.